We all grow up in a culture that teaches us categories that are important in that culture, categories of people, social identities, different groups, what categories matter. When we encounter a person and we recognize the category or categories they belong to, all of that stored information starts to come to the forefront and it starts to influence the way that we interact with that person. And I think the other important thing about unconscious bias, in addition to the fact that it happens really automatically and spontaneously sometimes, is that it can really conflict with who we believe ourselves to be. Like we can believe ourselves to be a person who treats others well. In fact, most people do. I think most people believe we treat others well. We want to be fair. We want to treat people in an egalitarian way. But then these stored memories and associations and stereotypes can really interfere with that and cause us to behave in ways that conflict with those values. So have you ever realized how often you think without really thinking? Well, according to University of Virginia psych professor and author Timothy Wilson, we're faced with around 11 million pieces of info at any given moment. And out of that 11 million, funny thing is we're only actually able to process about 40 bits of information. So the result, well, rather than assessing all the information presented to us, our brain compresses all that information and relies instead on our experiences, our beliefs, the patterns that we have, hidden scripts, and history to fill in the gaps, which most often leads to snap judgments or decisions. And over time, as we continue to use this imperfect data to navigate the world, unconscious biases, preferences begin to form, things we're not even aware of, but are guiding how we interact with people and often judge them all day long without even realizing it's happening. And according to my guest today, Jessica Nordell, if left unchecked, they can and already have wreaked havoc on our cultures, our organizations, our relationships, and communities. So Jessica is an award-winning author and science writer known for expertly blending rigorous science with compassionate humanity with degrees in physics from Harvard and poetry from the University of Wisconsin. She is deeply engaged with connecting across differences to really expand and heal the human experience. And her debut book, The End of Bias, A Beginning, it's the culmination of 15 years of reporting and writing on bias and discrimination and how to solve it. The book, which offers readers hope and direction on how to change their bias behavior, was named a best book of the year by the World Economic Forum, Greater Good, ARP, and Inc. And in our conversation today, we dive deeper into some of the fascinating ideas and research presented in her book. Jessica and I also go back in time. She walks me through some of the key moments in her life and her career that led to her research into these hidden scripts and preferences. And we talk about what they are, where they come from, how they affect us and offer ideas on how we can drastically re-examine and change the way we think about and treat others to create a more meaningful and compassionate connection with the people around us. So excited to share this conversation with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Good Life Project is brought to you by Understood Explains, a podcast that's like a beacon for parents navigating the special education system. Hosted by Juliana Ertube, a special education expert, this season is all about individualized education plans, or IEPs. Juliana breaks down complex topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP in a way that's easy to grasp. I checked out an episode of Understood Explains about the difference between IEPs and 504 plans, and I was struck by the balance of empathy and practical advice. It's not just about understanding the system. It's about empowering parents and caregivers to advocate for their children, which is just so important 
So I've known a number of people who've had to literally scramble to figure out how to advocate for their kids when the system seemed to just make it so hard to get the support that they need and deserve. So if you're a parent navigating this world or even just wondering if it's right for your family, I encourage you to give Understood Explains a listen. Search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. It's like having a roadmap for a journey you didn't expect, making it a little less daunting. Good Life Project is sponsored by LinkedIn Ads. So as a business-to-business marketer, your needs are unique. B2B buying cycles are long and your customers face incredibly complex decisions. So isn't it time you had a marketing platform built specifically for you? LinkedIn Ads empowers marketers with solutions tailored for B2B. Imagine having direct access to a billion professionals, including 180 million senior executives and 10 million C-level leaders with LinkedIn's powerful targeting tools built for B2B, you can drive serious results. LinkedIn ads generated two to five times higher return on ad spend than other social platforms in the technology space. We've actually tapped the power of LinkedIn ads a number of times ourselves, and the campaigns have been really successful. If you're ready to revolutionize your B2B marketing, try LinkedIn ads with a $100 credit on your next campaign. Terms and conditions apply. Go to linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject, or just click the link in the show notes. Terms and conditions apply. I'm deeply fascinated by you, by the work that you've been doing, by the book. I just want to dive into some of these topics because obviously it's so of the moment, not that it is anything new, but um, so curious. I want to really deconstruct. Um, so, so many different places that we could start into the conversation. I'm always curious of just sort of like what brought a person to a particular place where they're doing the work they're doing, living the life that they're living. Um, you spent a chunk of time writing in no small part in radio, Prairie Home Companion, working with Krista Tippett in the early days, and then end up bouncing back to school um, to study poetry. I'm always curious about the bigger decision also of somebody who goes out into the world is building a career, is building your chops, building like everything that, and then sort of takes this, what from the outside looking in often appears to be like a hard left to do something where people are like, what's that about? I'm curious if you're open to it, like sort of dropping back into that moment, because I'm always fascinated by those decision-making moments that often lead people in very different paths or directions. Absolutely. So I've taken many hard lefts in my life. So I just want to make sure I'm focusing on the one that you're, that you're asking. Are you, are you, were you quest, um, wondering about the decision to, to go into poetry, to study poetry? Yeah. yeah. You know, poetry has always been extremely important to me. And I feel like my my doorway into poetry was accidentally happening across some excerpts from Adrian Rich's book, Atlas of the Difficult World, which came out when I was about 14. I think there's something special about like age 13, 14, like you're sort of just so open to the world. And I was lucky enough to intersect with her work at that age. And it just, you know, opened my heart, my mind. I just became fascinated with poetry as a way of using language to touch beyond the mind into the heart and into the spirit. I think of poetry almost as like a cathedral for language. It's this mm. structure that invites us in and allows us to have like an experience that we could not have any other way. And that's what happened to me personally when I encountered Adrian Rich's poetry. And so poetry was really important to me as a reader, eventually as a writer. And in school, I actually studied physics. I was a science major, but always right. nurtured this love for language, for writing. And at a certain point in my career as a journalist, I decided that I, that I wanted to focus on it and went back to school and got a master's degree in creative writing, um, focusing on poetry. And I found it to be just an incredible lens, you know, to see the world, to approach everything. I mean, I work as a journalist now, and I I feel like I draw on poetry all the time in my reading and my writing, in the way that I you know try to use language and put sentences together. So it continues to be a really important part of my life. So this is fascinating to me also because when you think about journalism, very often you think about okay, so the craft is generally is very often speed because you're on deadline constantly, right? And it's like how can I get, get objective and focus on the fact or, or as close to the like capital. 
T truth as we can get, right? That's my job. Mm-hmm. It's less about the craft of the language that actually gets the story out. It's like getting the story out as accurately as humanly possible. And then when you get to poetry, it's so much about the language itself. I have always been a big believer that, you know, the old quote, the, you know, the medium is the message. You can't separate them. And, and you can see in your writing, like even in your journalism, in the book length works, right? There is a rhythm, there's a cadence, there's a, mm. there's a poetic aspect of what you do that just, it changes the way that the language lands. And I have to imagine that like, that's intentional for you. Like when you're writing a sentence or a paragraph or a page or a book, it's not just about, is this accurate? Is this right? Is this valuable? But is the language doing what I hope it does? Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate that. Um, I agree that in journalism, the attention is not often to the language. But for me, I completely agree the medium is the message. And I feel that maybe it's because of my background in poetry. I feel that if the language is right, if the word choice and the rhythm and the meter even the meter, I think about the meter when I'm when I'm writing, like stressed and unstressed syllables, da 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 da. You know, mm-hmm. if the meter is right for that particular idea, then I believe it can land in a way that that creates an experience, you know, an emotional experience, not just an intellectual experience. And yeah, when I'm writing, I I often read the work, you know, read the sentences out loud change word order to try to try to get it just right. I'm thinking this conversation's making me think of something I heard the poet Franz Wright say once about about poetry. He's one of my favorite poets and he said something like I write poetry because it's something I can create that's small and perfect and it fills me with ecstasy. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> uh, that's fantastic. Um yeah, I, I think it really is so much of a part of the way that something lands. It's interesting that you sort of, you speak out because I do the same thing when I write. Yeah. Like I'm sort of, I'm literally like, I'm like, what does this sound like in my head when I'm speaking it? And is there, um, and I'm, I'm feeling the rhythm and the pace and the cadence and all of these things and, um, and the tempo. And I feel like there's so little attention paid to that in a lot of popular writing. And yet it can make such a profound difference in how it lands in somebody. It's like, it's those subtexts, it's it's those things we don't think about so often that actually allow something to bypass the analytical brain and just yes. hit on, on an emotional level and get somebody to be like, oh, wow, I feel that. It's music. It's, yeah. You know, that's what poetry is. It's music. So it's, a, so it's a way of turning language into music and giving it the power that music has, which is like it bypasses our analytical brains and it creates, it lets us feel something. Yeah, I love that. So you're, you bring the poetry into the writing, um, you step back into the world of journalism, but you, there's an interesting sort of like a, I don't know if you would call it an inciting incident, but um, that ties into the work that you've been really deepening into for years now. And it's, you know, you, you have a story and you're pitching it around. Tell me what happens here. <laughs> yeah, this was early in my journalism career. I was pitching a story that had a particular link to something happening in the in the world. So it had like a narrow window where it would be interesting to editors. And I was sending it out. I didn't know anyone. I was cold querying people all over. And this was my first kind of first effort at pitching national magazines and newspapers. And I wasn't getting any response to these queries. So I had a moment of desperation, really in which I decided to try pitching the same piece with a different name. And so instead of Jessica Nordell, which is my name, I pitched the same piece with a new email address and with the name J.D. Nordell, thinking in the spirit of George Eliot and George Sand and so many women writers, you know, maybe having a more masculine sounding name would be a benefit. I didn't really think it would work. It was sort of just like a, an idea. And the piece was accepted within a few hours, the same piece that hadn't gotten any attention before. That, I think, was an inciting moment for my interest in bias and discrimination. And, you know, my experiences as a woman in the world, in the working world, you know, continued to kind of reinforce that, that interest and that first experience. But that, that, I think, was the moment of, like, me thinking, 
hmm, I think I need to understand this a little bit more. It's interesting, right? Because then from what I understand, you keep writing under the under JD for, mm-hmm. I guess, a couple of years, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you you also make the the decision to say, okay, so actually, I need to actually start writing under my my own name. Tell me about that decision. Like, when when did you know it's time and why? I think there were a couple of things that happened. One was practically, I couldn't keep track of the two bylines. <laughs> <laughs> and so I remember I had this really awkward experience where I pitched a piece as JD. I was interacting with this editor as JD. And I'll have to say that when I was JD, when I pitched with this man's name, I felt a kind of freedom in my way of interacting over email that I didn't experience as Jessica when I was pitching as Jessica. Like, I felt like I could be more terse. I didn't have to use as many exclamation marks. Like, I just kind of felt like this kind of power that I, that I hadn't. So I enjoyed that. You know, that was, that was an interesting experience. But then I had this experience where, you know, I'd been corresponding with this, with this editor. This editor thought my name was JD. And then at one point they wanted to call me and talk about something on the phone. And I answered and said, hi, this is Jessica. And I could tell that they were really surprised and there was some awkwardness. And I just thought, I just don't want to keep doing this dance. And I think there was also a part of me that felt like I want there to be another woman's name out there in the world doing work that I felt was meaningful. So that was another part of the decision. Yeah. I'm interested also in in the response or like when you're working with editors over a period of years and then all of a sudden they realize, oh, this is same person, but I had probably made a whole bunch of assumptions about this person that weren't right and probably communicated with them in a way that that may have been different. What their response was, if if any, Hmm. or were they just caring about the work? (laughs) It's a good question. I would love to ask them that question, actually, because yeah. I never addressed it head on. So I don't know if I have a really good answer for you. I mean, we definitely had some, there were some sort of awkward conversations like, oh, oh, okay. So are you Jessica? Are you JD? Like just which, which one is it? And then, you just know, let's kind of move on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is, this is wasting my time, you know, back to your earlier point that journalism yeah. is about like getting right, things right. done yeah. on time. <laughs> so we didn't really talk about it, but I felt like I I noticed a difference in kind of the language that was used in emails and the and certainly the directness with which I felt free to communicate. What was popping into my head when I was asking that also was I was around the earlier days of blogging, sort of like the mid two thousands, and there was a person who developed a really big following. It was a blogger with a, a clearly gendered name, like male, wrote with a lot of machismo. And then a couple of years into that, after developing a really huge following, said, no, actually, <laughs> I'm not a male. I'm a woman. I'm a mom. Um, and there was huge blowback from her readers. Hmm. And people, I, it, it was sort of like the very early days of being about as canceled as you could, you know, like in blog comments and stuff like that. And it was just, it was a fascinating, horrifying, just like the social phenomenon, like to sort of watch it all go down was just, it raised so many issues and questions in my mind. And not the least of which is, why, why do you actually care that much if what you were being given mm. on a weekly basis was actually valuable to you and moving you? But we do, you know, and this is sort of like layers and layers and layers deep, which leads us to really like the work that you've been diving into for a number of years now. You end up, that you know, like experience for you really opens your curiosity as you shared about like this, the idea of bias and unconscious bias. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of times when we hear that, um, the immediate default for a lot of people is that this, this is about race mm-hmm. and it's a yes and type of thing. Well, yes, but there's, there's gender, there's mental health, there's body, there's faith, there's ability, there's like sexual preference. There's all these different things, right? What makes you sort of like reach a moment where you say, okay, I'm actually going to devote years of my life to research and and create a, a substantial body of work around this question? You know, it was very personal for me. I felt like I couldn't escape this experience of being seen through a distorted lens. I found it in different workplaces where I found my 
my work was being perceived differently than an equivalent male colleague's work was being seen. I experienced things that, you know, I learned later were really well-documented patterns for, for women in the workplace. Things like having my personality be kind of policed, being told that I was too aggressive or too abrasive when I was acting exactly in the same way as, you know, a male colleague or maybe even a little bit more nurturing and communal than the male colleague, but was seen as being too assertive, too, too much. And so I was, you know, continuing to have these experiences. And so it sort of kept that journalistic interest really alive, you know, really lit up. It felt very urgent to me, very personal to me to understand this and ultimately to try to figure out what, if anything, could be done about it. Over the years, I I continued to write pieces to, to try to understand this. I mean, another kind of turning point for me was talking to, well, first reading an essay published by the neurobiologist Ben Barris about his experience transitioning and presenting to the world as Ben after being a scientist, presenting to the world as a woman, and recognizing a lot of what he what he experienced. So your question was sort of like, what kept this as such an important topic for me over the years? So I would say, yeah, I think you know there were sort of key moments, reading the work by Ben Barris, understanding that this was what I was experiencing was part of a larger phenomenon, you know, not being able to escape it in my own work life. And then ultimately, you know, after writing many pieces about the phenomenon, becoming kind of impatient with just focusing on it as a problem, just using kind of the standard journalistic lens where we expose wrongdoing and then we, you know, move on to the next problem. I really wanted to understand if there was something that could be done about it and what that could possibly be, which brought me to this particular book project. Yeah. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Good Life Project is sponsored by LinkedIn Ads. So as a business-to-business marketer, your needs are unique. B2B buying cycles are long and your customers face incredibly complex decisions. So isn't it time you had a marketing platform built specifically for you? LinkedIn Ads empowers marketers with solutions tailored for B2B. Imagine having direct access to a billion professionals, including 180 million senior executives and 10 million C-level leaders with LinkedIn's powerful targeting tools built for B2B, you can drive serious results. LinkedIn ads generated two to five times higher return on ad spend than other social platforms in the technology space. We've actually tapped the power of LinkedIn ads a number of times ourselves, and the campaigns have been really successful. If you're ready to revolutionize your B2B marketing, try LinkedIn ads with a $100 credit on your next campaign. Terms and conditions apply. Go to linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject, or just click the link in the show notes. Terms and conditions apply. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The 
all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. So when, when we're talking about it, let's just define this a little bit more, actually. Unconscious bias, implicit bias, bias, overt bias. A lot of the focus really is on that, that you're talking about is this bias, which is less than conscious, however you want to language that. What are we actually talking about when we're talking about that? So we all grow up in a culture that teaches us categories that are important in that culture, categories of people, social identities, different groups, what categories matter. And as we're learning those categories, we start to learn associations and beliefs and stereotypes and we might cultural knowledge about those categories. And so that all kind of lives in our memory. And then unconscious bias or what I've come to think of as unexamined bias is what happens when we encounter a person who belongs to a category that we recognize. Like I'm encountering you right now and you belong to a bunch of different categories that I you know, have in my memory. When we encounter a person and we recognize the category or categories they belong to, all of that stored information starts to come to the forefront and it starts to influence the way that we interact with that person or the way that we engage with that encounter. So this can happen really quickly. Like I'm, I could not be even aware of the, all the ways that my stored associations and stereotypes and memories about your category are influencing how I feel about you, what I predict about you, how I'm judging you, all of these things. And I think the other important thing about unconscious bias, in addition to the fact that it happens really automatically and spontaneously sometimes, is that it can really conflict with who we believe ourselves to be. Mm. Like we can believe ourselves to be a person who treats others well. In fact, most people do. I think most people believe we treat others well. We want to be fair. We want to treat people in an egalitarian way. But then these stored memories and associations and stereotypes can really interfere with that and cause us to behave in ways that conflict with those values. And this is one of my questions. You know, I think most of us consider ourselves, quote, good people. <laughs> you know, like however you define moral or ethical and whatever tradition that like matters to you, we like to see ourselves that way, mm -hmm. right? So the notion that there might be a script or a series of scripts running that we are completely unaware of based yes. on our history, based on our experience, based on what's been transmitted to us through family, through culture, through community, that we have no idea the scripts are running, but they're literally controlling our decisions and yes. behaviors all day, every day. And sometimes in ways that may veer from what we consider to be like moral, good, ethical. Um, I have trouble stomaching that, even though I know the science behind it. Absolutely. And I mean, that's what I was encountering in the workplace. Like I was working with these very well-intentioned men often who describe themselves as feminist and really believe and you know, see themselves as like wanting to help women in the workplace and, you know, help women generally. And yet they were totally unaware of the way that they were evaluating women and men differently, you know, and the way that they were in subtle ways devaluing women's work or overemphasizing personalities of women employees versus male employees. And so, yeah, it is, it's very hard, I think, for us often to see the way that these deeply inherited myths, I would call them, are influencing our everyday interactions with people. And I also would argue really harming our ability to form meaningful relationships with other people. Mm, at this moment in time, especially, that's important. When you start to deepen into this, you also discover that there's a fair bit of science around this. So like, we don't have to sort of, you know, like we can, uh, there are, I'm sure any given person has so many stories and moments that they can point to in their own personal lives. But there's also, I mean, there's a, a body of research around this that identifies particular types of experiences or domains where the, like this is really prevalent. Um, share some of the research that, that I'm curious, like 
what the research around some of these things are. And, but I'm also curious, like, were you surprised by any of this research, either by the fact that it existed or by the size of what you were seeing in any of it? There are so many examples of this kind of phenomenon happening, and it's really ubiquitous in almost every field, maybe every field of like human endeavor. There is now research that demonstrates that groups are treated differently on the sole basis of their identity, their social identity. So some examples, doctors are less likely to prescribe pain medication for Black and Latino patients than white patients who are expressing similar levels of distress. Teachers are more likely to doubt the academic ability of heavier students than slender students. Sports announcers, when they are commenting on a a basketball player's performance, if that player has darker skin, the announcer is more likely to comment on their body. If they have lighter skin, the announcer is more likely to comment on their mind. Faculty are less likely to respond to an email from a prospective graduate student if that student's name sounds Latino, Chinese, Indian, Black, or female than if that student's name is Brad Anderson. And so we see, you know, in all of these different realms, and I haven't even touched on the enormous body of research about policing and bias in policing. So there's just a massive amount of research. And to your question about whether it was surprising, as I, it's a really good question. I don't know if I was surprised, but in some cases I was profoundly alarmed. You know, I was saddened and angered by a lot of the the research that I found, particularly in domains like healthcare, where bias can have life or death consequences. It did, in fact, for a friend of mine who, who whose story I tell in the book, and it it does for many people whose symptoms aren't taken seriously or whose diagnoses are delayed because of you know, unexamined biases and, and forms of discrimination that they're experiencing. Yeah. I mean, the, um, I remember, I guess it was a year and a half, a couple of years ago. Now we had, um, Michelle Harper. She wrote this incredible piece, uh, book actually, um, the beauty and breaking, but she was an ER doc, you know, mm-hmm. and she, she very intentionally, she's a black woman, ER doc, very intentionally chose hospitals that were under-resourced neighborhoods. And she wrote about like what she saw happening in the ER and how the standard of care was just profoundly different based on, you know, assumed identity based on yes. what people saw, like who, who they saw you and assumed you to be. Yes. And as an, and, you know, as an ER doc, she found that a huge amount of her time was, you know, spent not just in service of her patients, but, you know, as an advocate for change. But even that alone was difficult because she's a woman, she's in medicine. So she herself... <laughs> is sort of like enduring her own multiple scripts that are running biased against her, actually, you know, like being able to center and and share important information and have it taken seriously and responded to. So I think, you know, like when you think about it in the office and you're like, okay, so these things, when you think about it in the healthcare domain, especially to me, that beca- that's, that's where it's almost like most horrifying because we're, we're talking about people's lives here. And we're talking about healthcare providers who are ostensibly trying to help. They're trying to you know, right. they went into the profession to hopefully, you know, to heal, to uplift, to to help people get better. And and then we see all these really harmful patterns. Yeah. And many of whom, if you had asked them, are you treating people differently? Yes. They would honestly say, I would imagine you could hook them up to a poly, you know, like, and actually they would say, no, I'm treating everyone the same. They would register as like telling the truth on a polygraph or however you wanted to do yes. it. Because you truly believe like this is something you're not aware of. Yes. One of the most, oh, there's so many examples from medicine and healthcare. You know, one of the bodies of research that really shook me um, had to do with racism in in healthcare. And there's a a meta analysis of the experience of patients with vascular disease, and what this meta analysis, so study of studies, found was that. Black patients with vascular disease, when compared to white patients with comparable vascular disease, are more likely to experience an amputation of a limb 
than a white patient is compared to a limb sparing treatment. And this is even after you factor in things like the, the severity of the disease, the quality of the hospital, the insurance coverage, all of these things that you might say, oh, well, maybe it's that. You know, maybe there's some other reason. When you take away all of those factors, you still see black patients being subjected to this disfiguring treatment more than white patients. I think when we really sit with that reality, it forces us to see what's happening, which is that we are valuing certain groups over other groups. The, I mean, medicine is, um, is certainly a, a horrifying place to see this show up. And again, I want to keep zooming the lens out here and, and, and reminding myself, our listeners, um, that we're talking about people showing up, truly believing in the heart that we're doing the right thing, we're treating people equally, and that we're ethical, good people. This is about what's happening underneath that, that we are not even aware is happening. You see it in medicine, um, you see it in the workplace in all sorts of different ways, very often in hiring and promotion. You did this really fascinating experiment. You did a collaboration that looked at, okay, not just in a moment in time, but like what's potentially the cumulative impact of these unexamined biases in the workplace over a period of time. Talk me through what you put together because I thought it was fascinating. You know, one of the questions I had when I was doing this work was, okay, we have all of this research that looks at these snapshots in time of bias. We see bias at the moment in the workplace, the moment someone evaluates a resume, the moment someone is filling out a performance evaluation. But I knew, you know, I, we all know that that this doesn't just happen in these discrete moments. It happens over periods of time. It's this long-term accumulation of experiences that, that people have. And so my question was like, how does it all add up? If you took two identical people and you subjected one of them to frequent everyday, maybe you know, small size, but frequent experiences of bias, and the other person didn't have that experience, what would be the different outcome? This was really my question. And I asked a lot of experts and researchers and scholars, and no one could really give me a good answer, like how all of these instances add up. So teamed up with a computer scientist to develop a computer simulation to try to answer this question. And we focused on the workplace because there's so much research about all of the different ways that bias shows up in the workplace. And we looked at gender bias in particular. And so we built what's known as an agent-based model, which is kind of a technical term, but it's basically a computer simulation where you have these individual agents and you assign them specific behaviors and you make a bunch of rules up and then you kind of start the simulation and see what happens over time. It's a way to look at complex or emergent kind of systems. And so we developed this simulation of a workplace we called NormCorp, and it's an eight-level workplace hierarchy with a lot of people at the bottom and a few people at the top. And in this workplace, we just had people do sort of simple tasks like um, complete projects, the projects succeeded or failed. And then people were either their scores were boosted or they were diminished depending on if their projects succeeded or failed. And then over time, we looked, then we promoted people based on who had the highest scores. So we developed this virtual workplace with all of these rules. And we made it half women and half men. And then we introduced a handful of the really common kinds of gender bias that women experience at work into the simulation. And we just introduced a very small amount, 3% difference. And so um, some of the patterns are things like women's work being slightly devalued compared to men's work, or women on mixed gender teams being given a little less credit for a project's success than men. They're a little more penalized for failure than men. These sorts of patterns were the patterns we introduced into the simulation. And then we ran it, and we found that after 20 promotion cycles, the top level of the company was 87% men. And this was after introducing only a 3% difference, only a 3% bias in the way women were evaluated. And so you know, I think what it showed was that these small amounts, if they're applied frequently enough, if they're experienced frequently enough, can have like a huge impact on the kind of disparities that we see in the real world. Because somebody might, you know, want to write them off. Well, it's just like, it's, it's a little thing here and there. It's a right. little thing here and there. But like what you're showing is like, but over time, 
you know, even at, at a very slow, and you could have, I'm sure, easily set that at like 10%, you know, and yeah. had it probably be like closer to reality. Yeah. And had a 95%, you know, like male dominated sort of like top level through promotions. Um, you know, it, it adds up, you know, over a period of months and years. I think a lot of us focus on what is the emotional and well-being effect on people when you're sort of struggling with this, when you're on the other side of these decisions and, and actions? And, and it can be fairly brutalizing, right? But it also has very practical, real-world implications because if you work in an organization for 10 years and you're doing the equivalent value of somebody else who, because of these like very minor biases repeated over and over over time, you know, and your likelihood of actually rising up, being able to have more security, more income, more opportunity, um, more stability is greatly diminished. These are practical implications that go beyond sort of like individual um, emotional state or psychological well-being. I mean, it's factored into it. Um, and it's it's stunning, you know, when you think about that. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight-up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. One of the things, I think it's clear um, from your writing, from the research, from this really interesting collaboration that you did, that a lot of people are harmed from being on the other side of these unexamined biases. But one of my curiosities also is how are we harmed? Like as you and I have this conversation, we are running our own scripts, right? Mm -hmm. Every single person, we have these unexamined biases and they affect other people in the world, sometimes negatively. Um, But we've got to be affected by them. Like how are they diminishing or harming our humanity by having these scripts run that we're not even aware of being run? In so many ways, Jonathan. <laughs> um, 
you know, I think one of the risks of having these kinds of conversations is that we do, I think we can fall into talking about it as though this is like a one-way experience. And that if I, if you and I are in a relationship and I'm expressing bias toward you, that harms you, which it obviously does, but I'm only benefiting from this, you know, imbalance. Um, And that it's only to your benefit that I would be trying to do something about this. And I think that's really risky because it obscures what's really going on, which is that if I am looking at you through this hallucination of bias, this distorting lens, I can't really see you and I can't really perceive reality. And I can't really love you because I can't see you clearly. And if you see me through that same kind of haze, then you can't understand me and I can't trust you. And so this starts to make a a trusting relationship really hard, if not impossible, because we're not seeing each other. We're not actually perceiving what's really happening with each other. And so one thing that I came to understand that I didn't understand at the beginning of this project was that this is important for me also. Of course, it's important because we want more justice in the world and we want people to be treated well. And this is creating real consequences in terms of people's livelihoods and lives and health and ability to just do their jobs in many cases. But if I don't take seriously the way that it hurts me also, then I can fall into this kind of savioristic mindset that impedes a lot of the work that we try to do in the world. And it's also just not capturing the full reality of what's happening. I mean, that lands really true to me. I feel like we are we move through the world in 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 no small way yearning to to know and be known by others right yes. like, and that is a huge amount of what what allows us to breathe to be okay yes in our lives and when we're running these scripts it obscures that it distracts it it pr- puts noise in the system um, but we're not even aware of it and you know when you look at the data on loneliness mm. over the last 15 20 years where and the levels of it have come up, up dramatically in the last couple of years have exacerbated that and you wonder, like, how much of his technology, how much of the, all, all the yada yada that we're talking about, but how much of it is actually, you know, a, a layering, a polarization that is actually deepening and layering into scripts that we all had, but actually like exacerbating them so that we know ourselves less well. And then we are not allowing ourselves to know others either. And we have no idea that this is happening, you know? So, yes, it causes harm to others, but also, you know, it, it stops us from a fundamental need yes. uh, to just be human and, and to know and be known, not for some facade, you know, or some set of assumptions or representations, but for like who we really are. You know, when that quality of attention is present, like when we drop into seeing someone for who they are, the effect is so profound. I mean, I I can tell you I had a personal experience of this Many years ago, I actually had the chance to to meet Adrian Rich in person after being this, you know, kind of crazed fan for a long time. And I went to a reading that she gave and I waited in a long line to have her sign a book. She was very old at this point. And this was probably 20 years ago. And I, you know, got to the front of the line and I gave her my book and she just looked at me and listened to me. You know, I I think I was probably babbling something about how much I loved her work and how much it had meant to me. And she listened to me with this quality of attention. I don't know if I have experienced outside of that. I felt like I was being seen truly. And I felt like physically moved by the experience. And it's kind of like a, you know, something I think back to when I think about like, what's the goal? What's the, some, you know, what are, what are we trying to do here? I think about that experience and how, how it affected me and how it made me feel like you're mentioning, you know, actually seen, actually heard, and how meaningful that was. Mm, yeah. I mean, what you're describing also is really, it's a somatic experience, right? It's not just intellectually, oh, I feel seen, like, or I, I, I realize I'm, it's like you're, you, there's something that's embodied there, which, which brings up another curiosity of mine around this whole topic, which is, 
I don't know if this is the right way to ask the question, which is, you know, like, where does unexamined bias live in us? Because I think the first impulse is to say, well, it lives in the brain. It's a, it's this thing where your brain is running these scripts underneath based on a certain set of assumptions and history. But I think about a conversation I had with Bessel van der Kolk a couple of years back about trauma, mm-hmm. you know, and the newer lens on trauma is you can't just treat it through talk therapy or through dealing with the mind. It is once this, that script has been running for a certain window of time, it is deeply embodied. It is somatic and mm-hmm. you have to actually unwind the body in order to unwind the script of trauma and the impact of trauma. I'm curious whether you have any kind of similar lens on that in the context of unexamined bias. Hmm. You know, what it makes me think of is some of the approaches that I explored that look at how to decrease bias. Because some of the approaches that I found have an effect on this in a in a positive way that that cause us to make less of a snap judgment toward another person or to do less stereotyping are mind body approaches so for instance one of the things that exacerbates bias that makes us more likely to stereotype are things like stress fatigue exhaustion cognitive load time pressure when we practice things like mindfulness and meditation and we start to decrease some of those impairments, we're less likely to make snap judgments. We're less likely to do stereotyping. One of the really interesting pieces of research I uncovered had to do with loving kindness meditation and the way that loving kindness meditation allows people to act more altruistically. This is research by the psychologist Helen Wang, who found that when people engaged in loving kindness, compassion meditation, they behave more altruistically toward others in a you know unrelated activity later and there's also some research and this is very early research but I'll mention it because I think it's fascinating there was a study that recruited people who were very experienced loving kindness meditators and it looked at their brain responses after being shown images of themselves and images of others and compared to a control group the meditators' brains over one region responded more similarly to the two pictures. In other words, it seemed like over one part of their brain, at least, they differentiated less between self and other. And so there's this suggestion that maybe one thing that loving-kindness meditation does is it starts to dissolve maybe some of that boundary between self and other. And if there's less of a boundary between you and me, it's harder for me to discriminate against you, right? Harder for me to stereotype you as someone who's different than me. Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. It speaks to the phenomenon that you actually speak about. Um, I, I think it's pronounced homophily, right? Yes, homophily, yeah. Homophily, right? Where we, we have a love of same, you know, and that this isn't a, a bias that so many of us have. We don't realize that we're gravitating towards or inviting in people who are like share a lot of physical, similar, psychological, cultural traits as us. And if that meditation can actually make others almost like present as more of same, yes, then it allows us to sort of like, okay, so I love them as I love myself, assuming you love yourself. <laughs> yes. That's a good, that's a good caveat. <laughs> right. <laughs> so fascinating. So, so mindfulness meditation is a really interesting intervention. You mentioned uh, well, loving kindness, um, mindfulness. You mentioned also, and that's interesting to me on on two levels. One is a lot of people look at mindfulness as a way to be more aware of what's actually happening in front of you, mm. rather than constantly living in the past or future. It keeps bringing you back to the present moment mm. and seeing more clearly like the reality of what's going on. And that can be on the surface and also subtext, right? Um, but the other thing that mindfulness does. And this, I guess, maybe goes back to my curiosity about a somatic experience is it drops you into your body. So many of us walk around sort of like living from the head up and mindfulness is this powerful practice that says, no, there's actually something else happening there. You have a sensing feeling system that is giving you feedback. Those two things, increasing awareness and, and having like a clearer sense of what like what's actually happening in the moment and a clearer sense of how your physical body is responding to that. It's got to be really powerful in terms of saying, huh, what's making me feel this way that I maybe wasn't even aware of? So you can start to identify what the scripts might be. 
Yes. And it starts to, I think about, I think the analogy that I use in the book is like, we have this, you know, perception, taken sensory information, we have a reaction, we have a feeling, and it's all bound up really tightly, like a bundle of twigs that are all like held together with a really tight strap. Mm. And mindfulness seems to loosen the strap a little. So you can start, there's some space then between what's coming in and my reaction. It allows me to maybe notice what's happening in my body, what's happening in front of me, drop into the present moment. And then I can actually take a look around and see what's going on, you know, rather than um, kind of moving on autopilot. And it's incredibly powerful. I mean, I certainly, I have had the experience of coming out of, you know, a period of meditation. I can think of a, a, a meditation retreat I was on once where I noticed that after a few days of really doing this practice, I related to people totally differently. Like I would see someone and just feel nothing but curiosity about them. All of the predictions, expectations, evaluations, judgments that I didn't even realize were running as scripts constantly beforehand kind of fell away. And it was like replaced by curiosity and lack of, you know, these other, these other scripts. So yeah, I think it's a really powerful intervention in trying to work away some of these biases. I mean, especially right, because and we're getting into sort of like the, the what do we do about this, you know, like part of the conversation. But what occurs to me is that you almost have like two problems, right? One is you're not aware of the fact that these things are running in the first place. Mm -hmm. um, and then the second is like, once you become aware, what are the effective things that you can do to change this? And this was sort of like the big question that you were asking going into the research project that became the book. But there's that first level again, you know, like nothing happens. Like you can't change something that you're not aware of. So yeah. like, this is a tool the mindfulness practice is like one tool to increase awareness. And then the question becomes, what do we do about that? Like, are these changeable? And if so, like, what are the big levers that might help get us there? You know, when I first went into this project, I thought that what I was going to try to find were approaches that actually change the associations we hold in our minds. And what I learned was that those associations are hard to shift. They're sort of, psychologists call it paradoxically flexible. You can kind of shift someone's implicit association, you know, after a brief intervention, but it kind of snaps back into place afterwards. So what I started to look at more was approaches that change people's behavior. And there are a lot of approaches that have been found to change people's behavior. And maybe even change those associations a little bit or those instinctive reactions. There are some trainings that have been found to change people's behavior by using sort of a cognitive behavior approach, increasing people's awareness of their capacity to be biased, increasing their motivation by communicating the consequences, and then giving them strategies to try replacement strategies. One of those strategies that I found really, really persuasive when looking at the research is forming meaningful collaborative relationships with people who are different than we are. This came out of some research from the 1950s by a psychologist named Gordon Alport. He really tried to systematically look at prejudice, and he wondered whether there might be certain ways of structuring human interactions that could maybe start to wear away some stereotypes. And what he proposed, he didn't prove it at the time, but he proposed that maybe if people could come together who were different, of some social difference, at equal status and collaborate on a shared goal, then maybe that could start to wear away stereotypes and start to shift how they interacted with one another. And what I found in my digging through the scholarship on this is that there are a lot of examples of that actually happening. Um, when the U.S. Army integrated toward the end of World War II, white officers' attitudes, feelings, behaviors toward Black compatriots radically changed as a result of that side-by-side -side work. There was a, a recent study, really interesting study in India that looked at cricket players who were of different castes. And it, this was an experiment that was done that put some men of different castes on the same team and some men only on teams with men of the same caste. 
And they found that the men who were on teams with men of different castes later were more likely to have friends of different castes, were more likely to want to nominate someone from a different caste for a reward, for a prize. They It really started to change the way they interacted. So forming meaningful relationships across differences with a, this collaborative angle seems to be a really powerful tool that I think could be used a lot more in our own lives. I mean, socially, collectively, communally, also in, in work situations, be really interesting you know, to factor that into how you form projects, teams, collaborations, conversations, instead of what is so often the typical, let's have some sort of training that we bring in from the outside in, yes. that as you write about, <laughs> actually do more harm than good, um, yes. you know, and, and actually create more of a, a boomerang reaction. It can actually deepen the bias in, you know, not infrequently. Um, as you're sharing this, really the notion of working side by side, shoulder by shoulder, sort of like on a collective project with people who are different than you and letting that be the thing that kind of without being the intention of let's do this project so that we can try and remove bias. No, let's just do this thing. And yeah. through seeing each other's humanity, it's going to kind of fall away more naturally. It reminded me of the work of Arthur Aaron, like who kind of became famous in Mandy Lynn's column in Modern Love in the New York Times a number of years back where she's like, yeah, we did these 36 questions and we fell in love. And then everyone's like, what are the 36 questions? But like Aaron's original research was you know, in his lab on intimacy where he took 45 minutes to complete strangers in a university, brought them together and had them go through these 36 questions that were progressively more vulnerable and mm. more required more revealing of who they were. And Often at the end, people said they felt closer to this other person who was a stranger than they did to friends that they'd had for years. And I wonder about sort of like intentional interventions like that that are fairly short and sweet, but just like in a, create the safe container and the set of appropriate prompts that allow you to see another person's humanity. Like what would stuff like that do if it happened on a more regular basis outside of a lab? I think it would be fascinating. You know, I think one of the things that these kinds of interactions does is it restructures the kind of categories we have in our minds for one another. One of the things that happens along with homophily, like love of the same, where we're kind of drawn to people who remind us of ourselves, is this tendency to lump people of a different group into one kind of monolith. Technical term is outgroup homogeneity. And it just means we, if we don't belong to a group, we tend to see everyone in that group as being kind of similar, sharing certain traits, being kind of have, having some kind of essential qualities that are similar. What happens when we have these kinds of interactions is that monolithic way of seeing another group starts to fracture. And we start mm. to see all of these different categories that exist in this large category. And that's really important because when we start to see that this group of other, what we think of as the other, is actually just as diverse and complex and made up of so many different kinds of people as our own group, then it becomes a lot harder to stereotype that group. It's just not based in reality. There are too many different kinds of people to be able to use a broad brush stereotype. I love your thought experiment. I mean, if we could... <laughs> I remember hearing about libraries. Had, had you did you ever hear about this approach? There were there was a library somewhere that introduced this program where you could check out a person. Oh no, kidding! Instead of <laughs> no, a I never book. Heard of this. <laughs> and the idea was there were all of these different kinds of people at the library, and you could quote unquote check out a person, sit down with them. I think maybe the term check out is not quite the right <laughs> term; has a little different connotation. But the idea is you could sit down with this person and ask them questions. And I think maybe there were even question prompts to create some kind of intimate conversation. I don't know if it was ever like studied formally in terms of like the impact, but I think that, you know, we can't really overstate the power of those kinds of relationships and breaking down these inherited bad ideas. Yeah. And imagine if like that, what you just described at, at a library was you know, happened at every school library, like when kids were in, you know, like primary school or middle school, when they're forming so many of these, you know, like these scripts are just starting to get encoded into you. Like if you could actually like change the data set that was going into them. And I think if we zoom the lens out, you know, we are all going to run scripts. We're all going to categorize. Um, our brains literally have mm -hmm. to do that because that actually helps mm -hmm. them function. 
you know, so it's, it's a, it, but it's, I think what we're really talking about is like, how do we do that in a way which is expansive and inclusive and, and betters our lives and the lives of the world around us rather than excludes and isolates and worsens the world around us. Um, so it's less about saying, let's eliminate all of these things. I would imagine, at least from my, the way that I'm thinking about it, that's not really possible. But can we rewire them in a way where um, the net effect of that is actually, you know, like we all rise together? Does that make sense to you? Or do you think they actually can be removed? I think given where we are at this moment in history, given the hundreds of years of inherited ideas that we have in terms of race and racial hierarchies, of inherited lies about race and racial hierarchies, and the thousands of years of inherited ideas we have about gender hierarchies, if these things can be eliminated, I think it will take a very long time. But I think that we do have the capacity to really examine these inherited ideas, really question where they're coming from and whether they're serving us as a society, as individuals, as communities, as friends, and be deliberate about working against them in all these different ways. That I think I, I have come to believe is definitely possible. I've seen the effect in my own life, my own relationships, and in other people's lives and other communities. And so I think we can move toward what we're trying to get to. Um, certainly behind that. And it feels like a good place for us to come full circle in our conversation as well. So in this container of Good Life Project, if I offer up the phrase to live a good life, what comes up? I think to live a good life is to move towards seeing others in their full humanity and full complexity, and in turn being seen in our own full humanity and full complexity. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Hey, before you leave, if you love this episode, Safe Bet, you will also love the conversation we had with Zoe Chance about how social dynamics and language influence our behaviors. You'll find a link to Zoe's episode in the show notes. Good Life Project is a part of the ACAST Creator Network. And of course, if you haven't already done so, please go ahead and follow Good Life Project in your favorite listening app. And if you found this conversation interesting or inspiring or valuable, and chances are you did since you're still listening here, would you do me a personal favor, a seven second favor and share it maybe on social or by text or by email, even just with one person, just copy the link from the app you're using and tell those, you know, those you love, those you want to help navigate this thing called life a little better so we can all do it better together with more ease and more joy. Tell them to listen, then even invite them to talk about what you've both discovered. Because when podcasts become conversations and conversations become action, that's how we all come alive together. Until next time, I'm Jonathan Fields, signing off for Good Life Project.